Standing on the platform of truth. Pioneer Health and Missions. Well, hello everyone. My name is Mike Casey and I'm with Pioneer Health and Missions. And it's a pleasure to be here today. And I thank you for having me. And I'd also like to welcome all of you who are watching online. It's a pleasure to have you with us as well today. Today's presentation is titled, The Two Sides of Adventism. And what are the two sides of Adventism? Well, on one side we have traditional Adventism, and on the other side we have nominal Adventism, or as we will be speaking on today, evangelical Adventism. Now, where is the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church during this? And I say corporate Seventh-day Adventist church as opposed to the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement. Well, they have left Adventism, unfortunately. They may have copywritten the name Seventh-day Advent, Seventh Adventists, but they're no longer Adventists. They have gone back to the nominal church. They have gone back to the false gods of worship, which the Adventist pioneers as the Church of Philadelphia was called out from under the Second Angel's message. So they're kind of out of the picture here, although we will discuss them slightly here and there. But our focus today is God's final church and the two sides of that church. Our opening scripture today is Romans 13, 11, and 12. Now, I know that we already read this today, but I'd like to read it again for those that are watching online. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. For those who can, may we know for prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we pray for your spirit to be with us, dear Lord. We pray that you will give us understanding and draw us closer to you. I pray, dear Lord, that you will speak through me. Dear Lord, may my words be the words that you would have me to say. And please guide my thoughts, dear Lord, in the direction that you would have me to go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The two sides of Adventism. So what are these two sides of Adventism? Well, we mentioned briefly that it's nominal Adventism versus, or actually uh, traditional Adventism versus nominal Adventism or evangelical Adventism. But what is that great divide? What divides the Seventh-day Adventist movement more than any other topic? And there are a few divides, we must admit, but there's one great divide. And what is that? The issue of sin. It's the issue of sin that divides like none other. Well, what is that? For those of you that might not be familiar, what is the sin issue that I'm speaking of? Well, there's several terms or topics that define what this issue is and that we divide on. Some of those terms are transgression of the law, the nature of Christ, the nature of sin, original sin, works, overcoming, perfection. These are some of the words and terms that you will hear among the movement that we hear different, differing opinions on. Now, as a whole, I I'm calling them the sin issue or the issues of sin. And to kind of sum things up, we have a saved from sin mentality on the Philadelphia side. On Laodicea, we have a saved in sin mentality. Two different views, two different views of major salvational issue. This is the number one thing that we are faced with in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. 
Now, we are going to be looking, first of all, what the Adventist pioneers believed on some of these topics that we have mentioned. And then we are going to see how the opposing view came into Adventism. And I think you're going to find this quite interesting. It's a little different approach than we have seen on these issues. Where did this come from? If these opposing views are contrary to what the Adventist pioneers believed, we know it didn't come from them. So they came from somewhere. And that's what we want to see here today. Now, how many here believe that the Adventist pioneers were truly the Church of Philadelphia? Or the beginnings of? As, as do I. How many believe that the Adventist pioneers were led by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth? Amen. I don't think I see a hand that's not up. Amen. Well, let's start out by seeing what they believed on some of these issues that we mentioned. First of all, Christ had our fallen nature. Let's read about that. Christ possessed the same nature that man possesses. He was tempted in all points like as man is tempted. The same power by which he obeyed is at man's command. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? If we believe, if we are willing, that power is ours. Christ overcame. In our fallen nature, he stayed true to God. But there's an opposing view to this, unfortunately. There are many that say, no, Christ had a pre-fallen nature, that of Adam before the fall. Now, that would go against the Holy Spirit, wouldn't it? Aren't these the words of the Holy Spirit? Wasn't the Holy Spirit lighting, leading the Adventist pioneers? So would that power, would that Holy Spirit accompany the spirit of error? That's how serious the sin issue is. We cannot manufacture this power. Only through the Spirit of God can we receive it. We need a deep insight into the nature of Christ. We can't be off on this topic. We can't be off on this topic. The pioneers also believe that Christ placed his feet in Adam's steps while in our fallen nature. What love, what amazing condescension. The King of glory proposed to humble himself to what? Fallen humanity. He would place his feet in Adam's steps. He would take man's fallen nature and engage to cope with the strong foe who triumphed over Adam. He would overcome Satan. And in thus doing, he would open the way for the redemption from the disgrace of Adam's failure and fall. And all those who would believe on him. Believe, my friends. That power is ours if we believe. We must stand guard against the spirit of error. Sin is transgression of the law. The pioneers believe this. The spirit of prophecy says it. The Bible says it. But yet, within the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement, some do teach that sin is not transgression of the law. Some say, well, it is and it isn't, or maybe some other version. But sin is transgression of the law. Let's read and let's see what the spirit of prophecy says. It says, and yet ministers will advocate that with that we have no law and misinterpret the precious scriptures resting to their own des destruction Christ's death on Calvary's cross which exalts the law and makes it honorable testifying to its immutability is through the lies of Satan presented to the people that Christ's death on the cross abolished the law oh what a fallacy that Christ died to immortalize sin the what only definition of sin is what Sin is transgression of the law. The soul must first be convicted of sin before the sinner will feel a desire to come to Christ. Sin is transgression of the law. 
The sinner cannot be convinced of his guilt unless he understands what constitutes sin. If we deny sin as transgression of the law, is there any conviction? What convicts the soul? Is it not the Holy Spirit? Are we not rejecting the Holy Spirit with false theory? That's how important the sin issue is. The law is the echo of God's own voice. Let's read about that. The gospel has not abolished the law or detracted one tittle from its claims. It still demands holiness in every part. There is no such thing as the law void through faith in Christ. The law is what? The echo of God's own voice. Amen. Giving to every soul the invitation, come up higher, be holy, holier still. Is that not a call to perfection? Amen. Amen, it is, my friends. It's a call to perfection. We cannot put perfection on the back burner. It's a response to the law, which is the echo of God's own voice, his righteousness. If we deny the law, are we not denying the righteousness of Christ? That's how serious the sin issue is. Grace. Oh, I fear sometimes when I hear the word grace, because more often than not, more often than not, it's used as a golden ticket to sin. It is used as a as as a as an escape goat, so to speak, to live as we want to live, in error, giving glory to self, not to God, and justifying it through grace. Let's read about it. How easily, from the transgressor's standpoint, could God have abolished the law, thus providing a way whereby men could be saved and Christ remain in heaven? The doctrine which teaches freedom through grace to break the law is a what? Fatal delusion. Every transgressor of God's law is what? A sinner. And how many? None can be sanctified while living in known sin. Grace is a beautiful thing, my friends. It's our, it's our way home, but we don't want to abuse this beautiful thing. Why is what the pioneers believed so important? Well, let's see. When men come in who would move one pin or pillar from the foundation which God has established by what? His Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. Let the aged men who were pioneers in our work speak plainly and let those who are dead speak also. Gather up the rays of divine light that God has given as he has led his people on step by step in the way of truth. The truth will stand the test of time and trial. My friends, it's God that led the pioneers. It is God that established the Church of Philadelphia and called them out of the nominal church and given these beautiful truths to us. This is the platform where we must stand, led by the Spirit of God. We read this earlier. That same power by which Christ obeyed is at man's command. My friends, if we will only believe, if we will only believe and be willing, that's our greatest work. Our greatest work is to be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. Well, we have a new view of Adventism. We have a new view which we mentioned earlier as evangelical Adventism. How did this come to be? How did we change our view on these topics to create this great divide? Some of you may be aware of this book, Questions on Doctrine, or QOD for short. Some of us may be aware that this is how the Trinity doctrine came into Adventism. This was the vehicle. 
Many of us know the name Leroy Froome as he was involved with this book. To explain things a little bit more, um, well, before I do, I do want to mention that this is how the sin issue came to be. The same vehicle that brought the Trinity into Adventism is the same vehicle that brought the sin issues that we have touched on briefly here into this. Not a lot of people are aware of this. How many here are actually aware that it's through this book that these issues came to be? I see two, few hands here. Well, that's good because you're doing your homework. And we really need to learn these things. I know that when I first discovered the Trinity, or the error of the Trinity, I saw a video, and it captivated me. Within a few minutes, I go, well, that's what I believe. And then I dug in, and as I dug in, I go, wow, I learned the history and how it came in. How it, how it came, I felt like I was deceived. I felt like I was deceived. You're going to find the same thing as we dig in on the, on the sin issue and the history of it. So questions on doctrine. Let's bring some people up to date who might not be aware. It was compiled, or the work of Leroy Froome, back in the late 50s. But it was actually an outside influence by the, it was Dr. Donald Martinhouse and Walter Martin. These were non-Adventists outside of Adventism that had such an influence to bring about this book. Well, Dr. Donald Bar Barnhouse, he ran Eternity Magazine, which was part of Zondervan. It was a Protestant magazine. And Walter Martin, he was a respected evangelical Protestant that was respected for his writing, his speaking. Uh, he was a great leader among uh, evangelical uh, Protestantism. Now, he wrote a series of three articles the, the, for Eternity Magazine, and the first of which kind of slammed Adventism as being a cult. Well, this got back to Leroy Froome, and he didn't like this too much. So he goes to Barnhouse and Martin and says, now what can we do to fix this? I don't want us to be labeled as a cult here. So they basically tell him, well, three things. Well, there's, there was a few things, but we're going to touch on three here. First of all, change the God you worship. Let go of the Father and Son and, and bring the Trinity back in as your God. That's the first thing. Second thing, lessen the authority of Ellen White. She can't be your go-to. Bible and Bible alone. And, and the third thing was change your view on sin. That has to change. And there were some other things. But this is what we're going to be speaking on today. Well, he does this. He goes back and he puts together the book Questions on Doctrine. And he writes these things into the book, changing the face of Adventism. House and Martin go, oh, they just praise Adventism for their bold move to step off the platform. Walter Martin, he's a man of his word. He followed, writes his subsequent articles. Uh, praising Adventism for, as we said, for stepping off the platform of truth, and they're welcomed back into the nominal church, welcomed back into the Protestant world. This is where we turn the corner, my friends. This was a great fork in the road for Adventism, not for this, just the sake of the Trinity, but how we view sin. This is where it came from, my friends, because it didn't come from Adventism. If they were led by the spirit of truth, then a spirit of error had to come in somewhere. And this is where it came in. We're going to look at several different articles and books to see how this came to be. The first of which was written by Kenneth Samples in the summer of 1988. The title of this article is From Controversy to Crisis, An Updated Assessment of Seventh-day Adventism. 
Now, at the time of the article, he was on the staff of Walter Martin's organization, the Christian Research Institute. So what better way to find out what was going on than somebody that worked there? Because when you work someplace, you get the inside scoop, don't you? Let's start reading. It says, the roots of evangelical Adventism can certainly be traced to the Adventist scholars who dialogued with Barnhouse and Martin. These scholars, Leroy Froome, Roy Anderson, even Figure, the general conference president, gave his full support. Of these, new, of these new beliefs that were being written into questions on doctrine. When QOD repudiated or sought to change such commonly held traditional doctrines as the sinful nature of Christ. Now, we just read what the Adventist pioneers believed. So what was changing? A pre-fallen nature. That of Adam before the fall was now being introduced to Adventism. Literalistic extremes of the heavenly, heavenly sanctuary and the writings of Ellen White as an infallible doctrine of authority. They had to lesson. My friends, this is where Bible and Bible alone started taking root within Adventism, starting to lessen the authority of Ellen White. And today when we hear Bible and Bible alone, unfortunately, what does it usually mean? We don't want to hear from the prophet. We don't want to hear from Ellen White. We don't want to hear from the pioneers. We want to interpret the Bible as we see fit. These are some of the roots. They laid a critical foundation for those who would later carry the torch for this reform movement. There's been a torch carried today. It was lit at this time. It's being carried within the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement, my friends. It has to do with the sin issue and a lessening of the authority of Ellen White. Former editor of Evangelica, Alan Crandall, comments, the seeds of this movement, Evangelical Adventism, were sown within the denomination via the book QOD in 1957. And the seed plot was watered by the public ministries of such men as R.A. Anderson, H.M.S. Richard Sr., Edward Hemmenstall, Robert Sprinsmead, Desmond Ford, Smuts Van Ruyen, and others. This movement continued to grow and evolve throughout the 70s, with the main spokesman being two Australian SDA scholars named Robert Brinsmead and Desmond Ford. Anybody remember Desmond Ford? What was, his, what was one of his catchphrases? If you're breathing, you're sinning. Well, we're hearing it today. It's just a new sweet savor a generation or two later. We hear born sinners, sin is a state. It's the same thing, my friends. It's just the devil has gotten smarter at how he presents it. Herbert Douglas, A Fork in the Road. I love the title of this book because this is what we were faced with in the late 50s. A fork in the road. Do we hang on to traditional Adventism or do we let this go for evangelical Protestantism to come in? Let's read. The theological contours affected by QOD were far more serious than what appeared on the surface, especially the humanity of Christ and sanctuary issues. Many teachers, pastors, and lay people continue to see the issues clearly, that one cannot separate or reframe Christology without immediately affecting one's eschatology. Andreessen saw it early on. M.L. Andreessen was actually labeled as on the lunatic fringe because he opposed these issues on sin. He was in support of the traditional view of Adventism. So at least in this matter, M.L. Andreessen was one of the good guys. In support of QOD, church leaders in workers' meetings and in various publications soon began treating as equally heretical phrases, such as one, 
Christ's post-fallen nature. So what were they doing now? They were attacking what the pioneers believed. They were introducing, again, a pre-fallen nature. Now it's being labeled as heretical. But that was, came from the Holy Spirit, those teachings. Those were the teachings of God that God set up. Can you see the change taking place within the church? Is this being led by the spirit of truth or the spirit of error? Spirit of error. Two, overcoming sin, this side of the second coming. Oh, we can't overcome? Perfection, can't do it. This was now coming in. But that's not what the pioneers taught. When we read the spirit of prophecy, is it an overcoming message? We can't have spirit of prophet. We can't have the spirit of prophecy or Ellen White if we're going to be teaching this. Can we? Bible and Bible alone. We don't want to hear from the prophet. An amazing spirit of retaliation against those who differed with QOD soon was endemic. Heavily advertised publications appeared focusing on perfection, overcoming sin, as an impossibility while still in sinful flesh. In so doing, a novel definition of perfection was created, at least for Adventism, in the place of the time-honored understanding of human cooperation with divine power in overcoming sin here and now. And my friends, as we read, if we believe and we are willing, we, we truly can overcome. We can do all things through Christ. If we believe and are willing, and that's the key, are we willing? If we're willing, we're going to seek to be saved from sin. If we're not willing, we're going to seek justification in sin. 1988 Great Controversy. It is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God and the nature of sin. Let's pause there for a second. The character of God and nature of sin. It kind of reminds us of the first angel's message, doesn't it? Fear God and give glory to him. These two are always together. God, the God we serve, and the sin issue always accompany each other. They always do. It starts with the God we serve. Second, do we give glory to him? How do we give glory to God? We seek through the Holy Spirit to take on the image of Christ. Do we not? That's how we glorify. We're going, we're, our, job, our duty is to go back to the image that we were created in. And what's contrary to that? Seeking to justify the image of sin within our lives. Philadelphia, Laodicea, my friends. These are the two sides of Adventism. And it all goes back to the God we worship. We're going to read this again starting from the beginning. It says, It is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issue at stake in the great controversy. His sophistry lessens the obligation to the divine law and gives men license to sin. That's at the root of the problem. It's at the root of the problem. We don't want character change. We want to stay who we are. But we want to believe and feel that we're saved. We want to feel that that grace has us covered, that that has our back. We're going back now to the, from controversy to crisis. It says the 60s and 70s were a time of great turmoil and doctrinal debate within Seventh-day Adventism, with the common denominator being the question of Adventism's uniqueness. Would Adventism continue in the same direction established under the figure administration in QOD, or would the de denomination return to a more traditional understanding of the faith? The debate over this question would give rise to two distinct factions, Evangelical Adventism 
and traditional Adventism right here in the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement. This is where it came from. This is where it came from. Interesting, isn't it? It, it sounds a lot like how the Trinity came in, didn't it? How can we deny one error and accept another? How can we deny one error and accept another? Back to Fork in the Road. We have already noted the flaw in the mystifying reference to scores of Adventist thought leaders who were listed as a lunatic fringe. The second puzzling problem was the amazing maltreatment of Ellen White quotations and the unwarranted subheads used to group them. Well, have we seen this happen? What about the book Evangelism? Have we put subheads in there that said, Trinity this, Trinity that, when we know it wasn't mentioned by Ellen White ever? What was it to do? To direct the reader to believe that the Adventists were always, non always Trinitarian, when we know that they were non-Trinitarian. The same thing was used on the issues of sin, are being used today, and taking certain quotations out that go all the way back to Kellogg doing the same thing. Take a couple quotations out, make them say what you want them to say, ignoring the writings as a whole. We're ignoring what the pioneers had to say on the whole, ignoring the Bible. Dr. Knight. Now, Dr. Knight was involved with the antedated edition of QOD back in 2003. Dr. Knight analyzed this well when he noted that the 1957 QOD creates a false impression on the human nature of Christ, and that one of the headings that Christ took sinless human nature especially was problematic, and that it implies that that was Ellen White's ideal when in fact she was quite emphatic and repeatedly stating that Christ took our sinful nature. And we read it for ourselves here today. Oh, and there's so many more quotes that will support that, the stance that the pioneers believed. Our Evangelical Earthquake by Vance Farrell. The three points, now there's actually four points. There was a paragraph following this, but I had to cut back somewhere, but it will all make sense. It was clear from the start that Martin had three points on which he would accept no dis disagreement. On all others, there might be some variations, but there were sent the three were central to modern Protestantism. See, we we're being called back into the nominal church here, and there were certain things that had to be changed if that was going to take place. One, that the atonement of Christ was not completed on the cross. Two, that salvation is the result of grace plus the works of the law. The pioneers were overcomers, and this is what was taught. But no, it was grace and grace alone now. This is where cheap grace came in, and we know grace is a beautiful thing. But this is where cheap grace came Now, cheap grace actually came into the turn of the century. This is the entrance into Adventism. This is interesting history here. But this is when it was, this is when it was being born into the Adventism. Three, that the Lord Jesus Christ was a created being, not from all eternity. So what was Martin trying to do here? He says, hey, no longer father and son believe here. You need to accept Trinitarianism. And he used the old straw man approach, saying, oh, that we believe that Christ was created. Well, the pioneers didn't believe that. We don't believe it either, does it, do we? Why? Because the Bible says that Christ was begotten. How that works, I don't know. But as the pioneers believed, Christ was begotten. And we believed in the father and son. But that was soon to change. And we know the history that followed on this. And four, as we have been reading, 
and that he partook of man's sinful fallen nature at the incarnation. We saw that it was going back to the pre-fallen nature. This is Walter Martin himself. This is what he was demanding change in Adventism if we were going to be accepted back into the fold. Back into the fold. Back into Babylon, my friends. This was the fork in the road. It was truly the fork in the road. Our final article is from David Qualls, and this was written a couple years ago. It was it's called Questions on Doctrine, Manifesto of the New Theology or Minor Abbreviation. Now, he's referring to Froome's book, uh, Movement of Destiny. So a lot of what we are going to be reading are actual statements from Froome himself. This is interesting, and we begin reading. Later in the book, Froome gives a lead-in chapter to the QOD publishing event. The title of this chapter, Changing the Impaired Image of Adventism, bellies the thing. He was seeking to change Adventism. In the mind of Froome, Adventism needed a facelift. Among the items needing to be remedied were the complete and eternal deity of Christ, the act of atoning sacrifice completed on the cross, removal of the last standing vestige of Arianism, and the lingering sinful nature of Christ's misconception. Again, we see those two things going together. There was a thoughtful effort to change Adventism on these two primary things, not just the God we worship, but on the sin issue. Again, this is the major thing that we are faced with within the Seventh-day Adventist Not Trinitarian movement, and this is where it came from. Spirit of error. Spirit of error. We're going to the next slide. It says, Froome goes on to describe how that once these issues were cared for, the Adventist church began to receive inquiries from prominent non-Adventist theologians, vital contacts with outside scholars, and invitations to speak from the, from the religious world. These invitations came from non-Adventist churches, colleges, universities, seminaries, and even secular organizations. He then continues with an impressive list of these churches and prestigious universities who extended invitations with gratifying results. Oh, we were just welcomed well into the non-Adventist world, into the Protestant world. Here we come. Can you see a turn? We're no longer the peculiar people. No, not at all. We're no longer the remnant. We're just one of the crowd now. And this is where that turn came. And again, it wasn't just our God of worship. It was the sin issue that opened that door. It was, that's what opened that door. How sad... What doubtless began as a legitimate desire to improve our standing in the eyes of non-Adventists turns into a sellout to those who are most persistent in demanding changes in our understanding of truth. Once we start down that road of looking to man for our legitimacy and acceptance, once we have tasted of that gratifying feeling of meeting the standard of non-Adventist theologians, once we seek for the approbation of the wise men of apostate Babylon, it won't be long before we find ourselves in a most dangerous place. Are we in a most dangerous place? And I, this isn't just the corporate Seventh-day Adventist church in a dangerous place. We right here in the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement are in just as dangerous of a place. If we allow the spirit of error to continue, if we allow this error to continue to guide how we believe, we started listening to non-Adventist theologians. And now, within our movement, we still carry the torch. We carry the torch of these non-Adventist theologians. 
So we've seen the two sides of baptism. We need to step back onto the platform of truth and out of the spirit of error. The time has come when things must be called by their right names. The truth is to triumph gloriously, and those who have long been halting between two opinions must take their stand decidedly for or against the law. There's no in between, my friends. If we're in between, we're in Laodicea. What happens to Laodicea? Do they come out the other side smelling like roses? They get spewed out of the mouth of God, do they not? What happens to the, those who believe in the Trinity? Do they come out smelling like roses on the other side? They end up in a lake of fire, don't they? The ultimate fate of Laodicea. We need to step back on the platform of truth of Philadelphia. We might pass through the time period of, of Laodicea. But what happens at the other end? We come out to 144,000. Because we stand on all the truths. We stand on the teachings of the spirit of prophecy and the pioneers, the Bible at heart. That's where we need to be, my friends. We cannot let non-Adventist theologians determine what we believe and accept it as truth. There is no new light when it contradicts old light. It just doesn't happen. Some will take up with, the with, the with theories that misinterpret the word of God and undermine the foundation of the truth that has been firmly established point by point and sealed how? By the power of the Holy Spirit, my friends. This is Adventism. This is traditional Adventism sealed by the Holy Spirit. The spirit of error, what we've been reading about, will lead us from the truth. And what will lead us back? The spirit of God will lead us into truth. Amen. Amen. Our Savior declares that the, that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. They cannot discern the truth, for they discern not Christ, the author of truth. Lukewarm disciples. Let's pause there for a second. What are lukewarm disciples? Laodicean disciples. It's not just those that are teaching error within the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement. It's not just those that are teaching the opposing view of Adventism that we've heard about. How many of us are helping them by spreading things on Facebook, through emails, through our speech, to support these non-Adventist theologians, to carry this torch? We are all responsible, my friends. Where do we stand? Do we stand on a platform of truth? Or do we stand on a platform of error? Philadelphia, Laodicea. And we continue. Also cold-hearted professors who are not imbued with what? Spirit of Christ. So those lukewarm disciples are not imbued with the Spirit of Christ. We're aiding in the spirit of error. Are not able to discern the preciousness of his righteousness. But they go about establishing their own righteousness their own religion, their own gospel, their own side of Adventism. Are we sinning against the Holy Spirit? Is it that serious? Can it possibly be that serious? If we are seeking justification in sin, denying the words of the Holy Spirit, let's read about it. Could it possibly be that serious? No one need look upon the sin against the Holy Ghost as something mysterious and indefinable. 
The sin against the Holy Ghost is the sin of persistent refusal to respond to the invitation to repent. We have a saved from sin where we're seeking to overcome through Christ. If we are seeking saved in sin, my friends, we are sinning against the Holy Ghost. We are sinning against the Spirit of Truth. Is this serious? Yes. Amen. Sadly, it is. The office of the Holy Spirit is, distinct, is distinctly specified in the words of Christ. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin. What does the Holy Spirit do? Convicts of sin. If we are denying sin, no, this is a state I'm in. I was born this way. What are we doing? We are denying the Holy Spirit. We are sinning against the Holy Spirit. If the sinner responds to the quickening influence of the Spirit, he will be brought into repentance. Can there be repentance? If we are denying sin in our lives, that this is just how we are? Is the Holy Spirit convicting against our sins or the sins of Adam? No, it's our sins. It is our sins. And it goes on, it says, and aroused to the importance of obeying the divine requirements. Sin is transgression of the law. Will we be found sleeping? Folks, without the Holy Spirit, we will be found sleeping, won't we? The Holy Spirit's the only thing that keeps us alive, keeps us awake. It's our only path home. It's our only path home. Intensity is taking possession of every earthly element. And as a people who have had great light and wonderful knowledge, many of them are represented by the five sleeping virgins with their lamps, but no oil in their vessels, cold, senseless, with a feeble, waning piety. They are not partakers of the divine nature, have never overcome self and the world with its affections and lusts. These characters are all through our churches, and as the result, the churches are weak and sickly and ready to die. There must be no indifferent testimony born now, but a decided pointed testimony rebuking every impurity and exalting Jesus. We must as a people be in the attitude of expectation, working and waiting and watching and praying. Amen, Amen my friends. We can't be found sleeping. We have no time to sleep. We got to take this seriously and do so now. Ellen White's plea to the sleeping. What shall I say to arouse the remnant people of God, the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement? I was shown that dreadful scenes are before us. Satan and his angels are bringing all their powers to bear upon who? God's people. She's not speaking of the Trinitarian, Trinitarians here. She's speaking to us, my friends. He knows that if they sleep a little longer, he is sure of them. For their destruction is certain. Oh, we have no time. We can't dilly-dally anymore. Are we going to take this thing seriously? Are we going to play church? Are we going to play church or are we going to take this seriously? We're going to close with the story of the ten virgins. But when we look at the ten virgins, I want you to take a look at it a little differently than we have in the past. Often we look at this as the Corbett Seventh-day Adventist Church versus the Seventh-day Adventist Non-Trinitarian Movement. Look at it again. This is the Seventh-day Adventist non-Trinitarian movement. I truly believe that. And within this are two groups. 
We have traditional Adventists and we have nominal Adventists. Those that are seeking to stand on the platform of truth under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and those that are seeking a spirit of error. And as we saw, void of the Holy Spirit. It's all about the Holy Spirit. We could claim to have the Holy Spirit and make it all about the Holy Spirit and be completely void of it. Let's read. We're going to be reading from Christ's Object Lessons. As Christ sat looking upon the party that waited for the bridegroom, he told his disciples the story of the ten virgins by their experience, illustrating the experience of the church that shall live just before his second coming. The two classes, Philadelphia and Laodicea, of watchers represent the two classes, traditional Adventism versus nominal Adventism, who profess to be waiting for their Lord. They are called virgins because they, are professed, they profess a pure faith. They're believers in a father and son. They keep the seventh-day Sabbath. By the lamps is represented the word of God. The psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The oil is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. In the parable, all the ten virgins went out to meet the bridegroom. All had lamps and vessels for oil. For a time, there was seen no difference between them. All believers in the Father and Son. So with the church that lives just before Christ's second coming. All have a knowledge of the scriptures. All have heard the message of Christ's near approach and confidently expect his appearing. But as in the parable, so it is now. A time of waiting intervenes. Faith is tried, and when the cry is heard, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Many are unready. They have no oil in their vessels with their lamps. They are destitute of the Holy Spirit. The class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They have a regard for the truth. They have advocated the truth. They are attracted to those who believe the truth. But they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's workings. They're seeking justification in sin, my friends. They have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and permitted, allowed, their old nature to be broken up. They're not willing. At the final day, many will claim admission to Christ's kingdom saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? But the answer is, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me. In this life, they have not entered into fellowship with Christ. Therefore, they know not the language of heaven. They are strangers to its joy. What man knoweth the things of man save the spirit of man which is in him? And so the things of God knoweth no man but what? The Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, my friends. Without the Holy Spirit, we will be found sleeping. Are we going to let that happen? That's my plea, my friends. We must step back onto the platform of truth. Time is almost up. Are we going to listen what nominal Adventism, what non-Adventists brought in, non-Adventist theologians brought in, are we going to carry that torch any longer? Or are we going to make that stand on truth and truly allow the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out? My friends, we can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. 
And my prayer is that we will truly allow the Holy Spirit to work within us. We're going to close with the scripture that we opened with. And hopefully you'll have even stronger meaning this time around. This is from Romans 13 again, and then verses 11 and 12. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light, my friends. Let us put on the armor of light. For those who can, may we know for closing prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence today, dear Lord. And we pray that you will be with every person that has seen and heard this presentation, dear Lord. Pray, I pray, dear Lord, that you will give us the courage, the strength, and the faith to step back onto the platform of truth and truly allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, dear Lord. May we finally, once and for all, end this great controversy. May we truly glorify you and vindicate you once and for all, dear Lord. We pray for your Holy Spirit that this might be. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Standing on the Platform of Truth 